Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell. Met a ghost of a king on the road. <laughs> Welcome to Sass. <laughs> Just boost the levels. Playing with our mood board. <laughs> with our new podcast mics. Hey, everybody. Mood board. Welcome to Sassif. Sassif. This you, is an episode of Lamp. Yeah, surprise. isn't that exciting? Surprise, or is the tech, is the French say? I think it is surprise. Oh, I thought it was, or maybe that's the that's the Catalans. I was gonna say that's the Barcelonans. <laughs> the Barcelonans. Yeah, the French would say surprise. No, but it's always funny <laughs> to say as the French would say and then say it wrong. It's one of those standing jokes. Right. Sorry, uh, I it just works it. in the I, Western world all the time. I took the joke really literally and ruined it. <laughs> You're like, You're wrong. I was like, No, actually, I'm pretty sure that's Catalonia. Say Fortha Bartha. So yeah. Uh, we're here to talk about Sound of Freedom. People have been waiting for a long time, and uh, we've got a fair number of questions we in. We do. Mostly are all about the same thing, and we will have a surprise in well, about we'll 10 minutes. Surprise. We'll see. <laughs> um, a second surprise. Yeah, so let's start with the, the one common question, the most common question. Well, the most common question is about, hey, this is... I think this may not be the most interesting question, but the question is, hey, it's true based on a true story, but so many things about it didn't happen exactly the way they portrayed it. What gives? Yeah. Does that ruin the effect? Does it ruin what's going on? Okay. Ask yourself the same question about Braveheart. Yeah. Okay. That's not true. That didn't that He didn't did not happen. meet the queen. That, that didn't. <laughs> In the little Well, hut. I mean, that part was true. <laughs> I'm sure the nudity was accurate and a lot of dying happened. Yep. Uh, but it's not true. It's just, it's not a documentary. Yeah. So if you're getting into narrative, you cannot think about whether or not this is documentary reenactment because it's not. So what is it? So you have to think of this as a movie. We're yeah, and I don't, I don't remember what the, I don't remember what the title card says at the beginning of Sound of Freedom. If it says inspired by true events or based on true events, but people use both. Yeah, and uh, very rarely do you see people who say the following happened exactly the way <laughs> this is represented. Except for if it's like uh, the Cohen brothers and they're being funny, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like, and it most certainly did not happen. Yeah, so inspired by a true story based on true events. That kind of tag is important. Excuse me, had to go sneeze in the corner. Really a, tastefully. A third surprise. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> so in a little bit, uh, it's not really a surprise. It's something we're excited about is we're going to grab Alejandro Monteverde on the phone um, to just chat with him about Sound of Freedom. So it's, I'm really grateful to him that he's willing to do this. He's been promoting the film nonstop. Uh, since it kind of took off. So I'm, I'm eager to chat with him again uh, about it, but as outsiders, not the maker on the other side where, you know, he's going to speak from that perspective uh, as the actual director, but as outsiders watching it, I think the things that stood out the most to me are the use of light, which well, I'm going to ask him about. Uh, then the tone being so heavy and i know i know he was using light i i'm guessing to try to offset uh, a lot of the heaviness of the tone 
Uh, but just how, like how he even approached that, how you approach something that's just so horrific and, and mm-hmm. trying to make it in a way that's accessible yep. to an audience. You don't really want to make the horrific accessible to an audience, but you do have to when you are uh, telling the story. And it's funny yeah. when people do, they are concerned about the historicity of certain events or, or whatever. One thing they rarely are concerned about is, is, well, you didn't as graphically represent the evil. You, the, as bad as the evil feels, it's nowhere near the reality. Yeah. It's nowhere, nowhere near how bad it actually is. So it feels horrible and it's much worse. <laughs> it's right. so much, so much worse than that. Um, I think, I think also the fact that the story is condensed out of multiple different stories. So right. multiple different kids with, through different experiences, the key setup. Um, I think there's also people being a bit naive about how the legal system works and why Tim Ballard might be willing to say this happened, the necklace story happened. And then at other times legally, his lawyers say it didn't happen and right. interviews with children and how that kind of thing plays in. I think people are being a bit overly critical when they say, now see, the lawyer said this didn't yeah. happen. And to me, it just makes me think, well, they didn't want this kid getting grilled over what exactly was said in this particular situation. Yeah. I don't know. I, that's just my gut well, when the, I was the doing research is, on it. If you're talking about which, which things are you allowed to do? Right. Which thing creatively? Because I wouldn't hesitate to add the necklace. I wouldn't hesitate to in, like incorporate that. And, and a lot it could of that, have been a necklace and it could have been a different character it could be like like a director could be like hey i'm gonna right. i'm gonna add this this clarity that it is ultimately god and providence who delivered this kid this is right god sent this character to rescue rescue him and i want that to be in the film and yes there was a necklace and i'm what i'm i'm heightening it i'm distilling it yeah all that kind of stuff i think i think it's because operation underground uses it as their primary fundraising thing so there's a lot of true totally. real life stuff yep. getting and there's a, there's that. and as far as the the cur, the kerfuffle around like the veracity of his claims about his life right that doesn't matter to me as much you yeah know, it's it, like it's if i were you know if we if we made a davy crockett movie and there were accounts that Davy Crockett wrote that are now historians say he's talking big about himself. He's doing whatever. It <laughs> Davy doesn't, Crockett would never. <laughs> it doesn't really affect like what I'm trying to do with storytelling unless I am saying this is a documentary reenactment so that you can feel as if you were really there. Right. And I've seen that done and it's a disaster. I've seen that. Mm. Um, it's socially, I should say, and critically, I've, I've had producers tell me that uh, – the passion was fully inspired. Oof. Yeah. Right. So, and the fact they, that he's Mormon applies to that as well. Like right. we, we don't, we don't need to get into Tim Ballard's beliefs about God. When we watch a movie where Alejandro saying, Hey, watch what yeah. God did. Look what God did. Like God right. sent this guy to save these kids. And the, the film speaks to the providential nature of this deliverance right. by means of that necklace. Now, how does Ballard fundraise? How does, you know, right? how do they do all that? I don't, you know, do I care? I don't really care. I'm right. not, I would care if I was donating to Ballard's nonprofit. Right. And the fact that Ballard's moved on from different organizations, you know, those are all things that I think we love to dig down and find. Sure. It's interesting because you want to know yeah. more about the character. But again, I would care if I was making a donation. Correct. If I'm writing a check, not just to 
you know, an organization that helps. Because I, I know people who've worked hard in anti-trafficking ministries. This is the kind of film that could remind me to go write them a check. Totally. And, and it sounded like, like it, it reminded tons of America. Yeah, and I, like, <laughs> I'm going to write them a check. It would, this actually, honestly, would not make me write Tim Ballard a check. This would maybe make me look at his current ministry and what he's doing. And is he the guy I'm going to back? Or am I actually going to give it to people I trust who are laboring in the same way in a different area or, um, or right. just trying to help some, some way? For, for me, watching what Alejandro did and what this team pulled off with this film, uh, not just in making it and having it be watchable, but also in releasing it and having it be commercially successful. Right. Uh, I first saw it when it was screened for Lionsgate, trying to get distribution. And afterwards, everybody's like, wow, that was a really powerful film. Right. Um, we all walk out of the dark little screening room and congratulate the producer and like, wow, you know, this was, this was powerful and it's heavy and the, the women are weeping and there's a, there was, it was a moving thing there. The, you know, Eduardo, the producer left and immediately executives were like, yeah, no way. <laughs> They're like, there's, there's just no market for that. Like there's no marketplace yeah, for that. And so to have made the film, to have made the film the way they did, to have touched the subject matter that they touched and to have spent that much time in it without a lot of comic relief, without a lot of pressure release and still have it be commercially successful. The whole story of the story here is, I think, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So, Just all the ingredients, that yeah. soundtrack and everything, all those things didn't, they felt so good, like all of a piece. Yeah, they're definitely all of one cloth it's all one tapestry yep. moving one direction all united and the tone of uh, my least favorite part was the call to action in the in the, in the credits right um, the straight to camera break the fourth wall in the credits i get it you're you're trying to like do your pay it forward angel thing i didn't care for that at all but the film by itself i actually i did care for the creativity of it and i did bet somebody that angel would throw a QR code up in the credits would actually successfully do that. And then I felt very proud of myself when I saw the QR code <laughs> pop up in the credits. They're like, no, and we then, don't do that in theaters. And then I told Jordan Harmon, who's the head of Angel Studios, I was like, you know, I actually it was 100%. You guys are going to throw a QR code in there. So I, I, there's a lot of self-congratulation just around that, even though I did not like the into-camera appeal right. from Jim. Right. Uh, did it work? Obviously it did. Right. You know, it, uh, yeah, it and worked. to me, I didn't even mind it. I did mind the watch the movie to stop trafficking. That right, that right, direct right. connection yeah. to me was if it had been like, hey, share. I don't know. There's that fine line where you. And immediately... incidentally, even there, I would say that uh, theater chains were mad, and Jordan told me this. Theater chains were mad. Uh, conglomerates or whom I don't know who the actual person was, but he said that they were upset that uh, they were selling something in the theater that didn't go through the theater sure you know were. right so you can't you can't do that <laughs> right and he's like no we're selling tickets we're allowed to sell tickets it's actually the only thing they would be allowed to throw on screen there they couldn't right they yeah. wouldn't be able to do t-shirts yeah, yeah they wouldn't be able to do some not, anything other than the selling of tickets in right. that spot without getting into big trouble legally so that's another reason why that's what was there right so that makes so sense. let's call alejandro now let's see if we get him all right i'm gonna grab the number from you oh fine Hello. 
Hello, Alejandro. It's Nate. How are you doing? Hey, Nate. How are you, brother? Fantastic. It's great to talk to you again. I'm really grateful you're willing to do this. I know you're a crazy busy man right now. Oh, no, man. It's an honor, man. So we we picked Sound of Freedom for our looking at motion pictures, looking at moving pictures club that we uh, we pick different films to discuss for an audience on this podcast, which is Stories Are Soul Food. SASF is what this this is. Sound of Freedom is a really interesting one for us because it is, as you might know, a very dark film. So um, I, I really wanted to ask you about your use of light in the movie because there's obviously a lot going on that's very heavy and very dark, but the way you are playing with light from the very beginning to the end, uh, I, I know you had something in mind. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, well, I, I believe that we listen with our eyes. And, you know, when I started um, exploring the, the visual arts, because this is, you know, we're telling stories through pictures. Uh, from the beginning of my career, when I was doing my short films, I remember uh, I started my career as, as I thought directing was to be a cinematographer. And that's mm. how I started. I was shooting all my own stuff. And I was, for me, I discovered that lighting was a constant character in every frame. Yeah. And, and I also started kind of studying uh, just paintings and the use of lighting on the paintings and how all these incredible artists were using lighting as a way of communication and style. But also the subtext, which to me, that's where the goal is. You know, the text is very easy. Anyone can do text in, in a movie. It's the simplest thing. And that is the problem with this format that anyone can shoot a movie. Anybody. Why? You just take your phone or, or a camera and put record. And that's considered a movie. It's a motion picture. And that's how the first movies that were ever made was that. Um but to me, the, the, the gold of a film, just like in any art, is in the subtext. And in this particular film, you said, you know, the film is, it's, it's, it's a heavy, it's, it's dark. Mm -hmm. We're exploring darkness. But I wanted to explore darkness through a vehicle of hope. And light, is, it represents hope. So I wanted to also create an estalistic language throughout the film to remind people that they were watching a movie. It's the opposite. You know, you have cinema verite or the near release of uh, uh, masters yep. where they are wanted to capture a more realistic approach of, of life. I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to use lighting to be very estalized to remind the audience, hey, the lighting on this film is actually a character and will be piercing this darkness. And our characters are, are the representation of, of, of light, uh, on this, on this world. Um, so, that's how we we started using uh, the light as, as a character in, in this film. That's that's really fantastic. I think you you said a lot there that is going to be new for a lot of our listeners. And one of the things that just jumped out is you you commented on wanting it to feel like a movie, not feel real. Uh, could you can you explain why a little bit for people who might not already have figured that out? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest challenges on these films, this is the biggest challenge that I had 
when I, you know, this is, was not a movie that I woke up one day and said to myself, I want to make a movie in child trap. <laughs> it was the opposite. This was a project that found me and, and, and knock on my door. And I, I, I was refusing to open, but I, it felt like a calling and the call was greater than, than any kind of concern of kind of exploring this theme. So my first thing, my first instinct was to watch other films on this subject. And I found out that I couldn't finish them because they yeah. were too heavy, too dark. And I said, I have to create a movie that people want to finish, but not only want to finish, that actually they can enjoy. Even though it's a dark subject matter, I want to create a vehicle of hope that when people finish the film, they don't leave all beat up, but I leave them in a state of reflection. Yeah. And for me, the first instinct was like, well, if I was to do this, the easy way that will work if is if I do a Broadway show, you know, literally play Broadway show yeah. because people will feel safe. They're like, well, you're not going to put any images in there that I cannot unseen, you know? Uh, so that was the biggest thing. Had to tell the audience to trust us, to feel safe that, hey, you know, and I knew that I was like, well, if, if, if this film had the name Spielberg in it, people will feel safe because, you know, Spielberg is not going to cross the line, right? Because he has a branding. Mm, yep, yep. So for me, it was very important that from the beginning, that's why that opening shot was so important. And yeah. it was the hardest shot I've ever done in my career. <laughs> it was because uh, I wanted to do it uh, non-CG. I wanted to do it practical. Yep. So that's a practical shot with a, with a zip line that we throw the camera from like, the third floor of another building and then we catch the camera and i wanted the camera to come as closer as possible to her uh to the to the little girl and i wanted to kind of tell the audience hey you know this is we're, we're, i'm going to tell you a story from macro to micro mm -hmm. uh, to a mm -hmm. personal story of this little girl but it feels like a tale you know like we opening yeah. like like a book tale like okay and then the audience start to feel a little more uh uh safe and to constantly remind them you're watching a movie these guys are actors but without crossing the line where it pulls you out of a film so it was uh, uh it was a decision a creative decision from the beginning but i was very uh confident that that had to be the way so we we started exploring it from the writing first and then Visually, you know, creating this this visual narrative uh, on paper first to constantly tell the audience, remind the audience, hey, watching a movie about a dark subject matter, and you're gonna be safe. So that yeah. was that was what we that's, intended. To that's do. brilliant. I actually I've I've mentioned this before, but my my grandfather. So some of the podcast listeners will have heard this, but whenever we were watching a really stressful film, my grandfather would say, "Don't worry, the cameraman will save them." And just remind us it's a movie. There's a, there's a bunch of people there. Um, yeah. Which is kind of what you did. I actually, that, that opening shot and then of course your exit shot as well, which bookends it, I thought was being used as sort of a, a communication that this movie is being told from the point of view of the light. It's like, this is a descent you know, there's this descent into a room, and then as as we're exiting the film, you pull back and, of course, reveal the sun. Um, was that part of it, or, or was I was I making that? No, up? that was that was a divine accident. Uh, Orson <laughs> Welles, Orson Welles, Orson Welles said, "You always have to create 
as a, a an atmosphere as a, a space so you have room yeah. for divine accidents uh that's a quote from orson wells and you know that that we definitely when we're pulling back out for the sun to come out at that side and create a flare you couldn't you could not there's no way you could actually time that so that was not that even was a, intentional <laughs> no, not the flare. The intention was to come out and and see the little girl, but the sun to pop wow. at the exact moment. I mean, if you look at it, when the camera is coming out, the sun is actually peeking out at the same time, and we create that flare directly into the lens. That's crazy. That 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 it don't matter if you have three hundred million dollars, you can't create it naturally. I mean, maybe on CG, but not naturally. Not well. I think so I think was, that's. That's amazing. I have a buddy who told me always use billion dollar sets, you know, just go outside. But it never, it never occurred to me at all that that was not intentional, that that would not been planned. I mean, that's amazing. That is a pretty fantastic divine accident. We, 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 this, my cinematographer, the director of photography and myself, after we're looking at the monitor and we saw the flare, we just looked at each other in a way that (laughs) we just witnessed a miracle that's awesome <laughs> that's, that's pretty that's pretty fantastic so yeah. when i when i first saw this film i saw a screening when you guys were shopping for distribution so i i sat in on a screening at Lionsgate that eduardo hosted that you know that he he did uh, something he mentioned there is he talked about protecting the child actors uh from being too aware of of what was going on or what the scenes were can you describe that yeah you know when you work with children i've worked with children i i I don't choose to work with children again it's like it's the projects (laughs) that i for whatever reason every movie my first movie called bella yeah i remember i had never worked with a kid uh that young and you know, I, I, it was very difficult because first you only have by nature only four hours, depending on yeah. the age. But Umbella only had four hours because I think she was like five years old or something. And there's rules. But it was one of the hardest shoot days. Uh, it was the ending of my film to the point that I, after I finished that day, I said, I will never work with kids again. <laughs> and obviously, next, next movie I'm writing is called Little Boy with a six year old boy as the entire lead <laughs> and the entire film. So it's, it's always difficult, but this one was a little more harder because only it was not only working with kids that are really young, you have to protect their psychology because the mathematics of this film are uncomprehendable. You can, you can comprehend them. It's like they're unnatural. You know, it's, it's right. sexual, child sexual abuse. It's, it's not, it just makes no sense. In many many ways, so I don't understand it. So think about a kid, yeah, uh, at that age, letting them know that this is one of the horrors and darkness of the world. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a greater darkness. I mean, it's this is up there with, I don't know. I mean, it's just very heavy to the point that I didn't believe it myself when I started searching this this subject matter. That's why in the opening of the film, you see those videos. That was not in the screenplay. You know, the videos of real videos of yep. people stealing yes, children. That's one of the most powerful the other, things about the film. It just yeah, got you the there. Only, yeah. The reason I put it in there is because I thought the audience was going to take 
you know, a lot from them to believe that this is happening because it took a lot for me to believe that this was happening. So I now transfer that into the child actor. I'm like, wow, we, he, they cannot know what this movie is about. So also it worked out to my benefit because after working with kids before, they, if they act, they look like a kid is acting and it's really bad. Yeah. So the best thing you can do with a kid is to use their power because they're they're trained to live in the present. So if you can keep him on the present, then he's not acting. It's really like a very sincere performance. So working with them in the beginning became a challenge for them not to know what the film's about, but then it actually became an asset because it was easier for the kids to be in the present. It was like, okay, this is what's happening right now. They just took you to put it into the dark, dark room. You're terrified. Why? This is a dark room. <laughs> and you don't know these people. Okay. And then boom. Right. So it, it, we kind of were exploring the dangers of the present moment without going into the yeah. layers. When you work with a with an adult actor, which you, you talk about the subtext and the layers and what the character is feeling and all of these elements. With the kid, it was like, this is what's happening right now, right here. And this is what I need you to uh, to do, you know, feel fear, feel sad, fear. So it was it was a more, um, you know, less pretentious approach to acting. It was just more, uh, if you want to call it more about just the mechanics of the present moment, yeah. more, more, more austere. But that that helped a lot to give this very uh uh sincere performance from the kids uh but that was not with all the kids you know rocio who was older uh the mother decided to 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 explain to her and i i you know i show my the film to my kids uh the one is 12 and then my daughter saw it for the first time 16 uh and i i did not wanted my when my daughter, I mean, I finished the film when my daughter was 12 and I decided not to show it to her until she was 16. But then I was like, you know what? I'm going to show it to my son that is 12 because, you know, I think the brands are enough developed. The film is, 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 is safe enough yeah. for yeah. a kid to see it without hurting their psychology, but it created awareness on the children. So yeah. it was different depending on the ages, you know, the, sure. the the kid that plays Miguel, he was five or six years old. I mean, that one, he was more like, you're sad right now. You remember when you died or you're, <laughs> yeah. this is what you're feeling right now. You know, but that simple. It's, 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 it's your, 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 uh, your little dog broke a leg or whatever. <laughs> the, the, the information they wanted to share with me, I just will ask him what makes you sad. And then we'll start working with that very simple, very, uh, organic approach yeah it's sort of it's like you said at the beginning that you were trying to make it feel like a movie not like reality you wanted it to be watchable you wanted people to exactly. be able to finish it so that what you just described is the exact opposite of method acting so oh, the opposite it's like opposite. you did not want children yeah you didn't want to yeah. harm the kids and and I've, yeah. I've seen this on sets where uh actors are legitimately damaged by some of the scenes that they play uh yeah. a, especially if they play them very, very convincingly. If they do an amazing job and they fully understand, it's a, it can be a pretty traumatic thing. Yeah. Um, and so protecting the kids from that is, you know, it didn't make your life easier, but... Yeah, I mean, I had, I had some actors... Clean. 
Yeah, I had some actors very, you know, there's this actor that I've been wanting to work for a long time. He's, he's a pretty big name and he's a friend of mine. And we haven't had the opportunity to work together. And I offered him the role of uh, uh, Alacran, you know, the, 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 the character in the jungle. Yep. And before he read the script, he says, I- I'll do it. I said, well, first read the script. I know, like, oh, man, this is perfect for us to work together. But he's a medical doctor. And he read it. He called me back and he's like, I don't think I can do that role, man. I just, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll mess my head up. Yeah. So he, he, he ended up passing. So not all actors, you know, there's different methods for each actor. And yeah, method actors are, are, they go deep into the psychology of the character. I don't think children, uh, should go there in a, in a method way. I think they're, they're, they have a, a force, a power, a superpower. They're, they they can live in the present way easier than an adult. Adult is always thinking that things yeah. behind it all gets in the way and disturbs the present. And every adult actor has that. So I, with kids, almost even if you know a twelve, thirteen year old kid that has a lot of acting classes and everything, and they want to practice method acting, I always try to to discourage that and say, hey, you know, let's just be let's just be here, right? The yeah. camera will know that you are actually in the present. That was the approach. That's good. I had a I had a question for you, Alejandro. On we talked about light and sight. Obviously, the movie has a big sound component as well. Um, you connected sound and the ability to dance and play music with freedom, I guess, as as she's rescued and the final closing scene as well. It just feels like such a relief to have her back to playing a song. Can you can you comment on? Did you use sound similarly to light or is it different for you? No, no, it was the same. At the end, you know, once you create a voice, everybody has to be in tune with the type of narrative that that we are trying to achieve. So it is in this particular film, you know, we needed to all be in synchrony and uh, the music, it was the same thing, you know, and, you know, some people may not like it. I actually, when I was a film student, I just did slight movies that did what I did in Sound of Freedom, which is really <laughs> interesting how you evolve as a filmmaker. Uh, I used to, you know, when I started studying film, I was a huge advocate to not use score. I always thought score mm-hmm. was the biggest manipulation emotionally. And all my short films, I, I never used score. I was just using natural sounds and just quiet and, and really protecting silent moments and not using score nor music. I was very against all of that. But as you grow, and I, it, it will be very selfish to treat every project the same way. Uh, I still believe that, you know, the movie that I'm working on right now, I don't think I'm going to have any score. It's going to be design, mm. and, and that's going to be, there's, there will be an, an art, just no, no composer. But, on this particular one, it was the opposite. I say, I actually need the music to manipulate the scenes, to let the audience that they're watching a movie, to, com- you know, yeah. carry the audience on these moments, to kind of give energy because, you know, subjects like this can deflate all your energy. And I needed music sometimes to just give you a, a punch of energy and like, come on, man, let's keep going. Let's keep, you <laughs> know, like working out. You it's can just finish. when you work out, you know, and then you have like this music and all of a sudden you get this, power song and 
helps you to kind of go up there, you know, keep keep pushing, you know, on, as, as you yeah. work out or running, you know. So it was the same thing here. The use of music was also very, very um, expressive. Let's use that word. I wanted to use a lot of expression and 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 the score. You know, Javier, the composer, he's one of my favorite composers. He did the music for the score for uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. And I remember I called him and uh, we started working. And I think after like two or three months into it, he comes to my office and says, I need to talk to you. And I say, well, what is it? And it's like, I, I, I don't know if this film is for me anymore. I say, why? Because he says, because you don't like anything I'm doing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I am sorry. I actually am liking it. Well, you have not once told me that you like it. <laughs> and, you know, for me, I, 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 cause we were exploring this, this path and it didn't matter if I liked it or not. I just wanted to know if it was going to work until we see the whole film together, you know? Uh, because a lot of the times you finish a film and you may have liked it in the beginning, but then the music becomes very intrusive and you have to change it all. And, um, so it was, it was a very difficult journey uh with 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 the music uh then little by little the composer you know was the first time we were working together and then he started we started trusting each other deeper and you know right now mm. we're we're we have a very very close relationship and huge fan of his work uh but it was tough it was tough i i i went through uh three or four composers <laughs> <laughs> he was a he was the last one i uh the first three didn't did not end up working out so it was a tough you know the music here it was it was uh and it was really close i mean he pretty much was putting his resignation and um i i realized that i that it was it was going to be a tough a tough journey because you know he's an oscar here, here you have an oscar nominated composer and it was some working in the beginning. I thought it was the other composers. And I was like, oh, maybe it's me, the problem. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's so, the common variable. Yeah. But it ended up working beautifully. Well, you you said that uh that 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 side comment you made about it being selfish to approach each movie the same way. Um sort of the auteur director, the idea that you just can you explain a little more what you mean about it being selfish to approach every project the same way as a director? Yeah, like you know, I, I every project that I do, I even though it's gonna sound a little cliche, there's a lot of truth to it. I let the project speak to me. I like no, I, I try not to get in the way. You know, Cindy Lumet said, you know, his best work is when he doesn't get in the way of the project, and that spoke really directly to me. So, in here, uh, as I started evolving in my career, I would not get attached to something too much. I would just kind of present it in a weird way to the project itself to see how the project reacted. And I will read it again and I will start working on it paper and I will let the project kind of dictate what it needs, not myself force a particular vision on the project. And if the project is rejecting it, uh, to continue to force it. Like right now, give you a perfect example. Uh, I, I will be a, a film student until I die. So we have to always be careful because you know, ego is one of the greatest friends of an artist, but it's also one of the greatest enemies of the artist as well. And the ego can destroy your whole work, 
or you can, in many ways, make it because you have to defend it. And you require a little bit of an ego to defend your vision. So it is a sword with very dangerous sword, I will say. And the more aware you are of the voice of your ego and the more control you have over it, and you can become a servant, then it's great. But if your ego becomes your master, it will be the death of your project. That That is not an opinion, it's a fact. So, <laughs> so it says the ego. Uh, it's yeah. not an opinion. Yeah, so it's says the ego, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, but you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. So, on, on for example, I'll give you a perfect example right now. I just shot my, you know, my new movie called Cabrini. Mm-hmm. I shot it in a way like very influenced by Andrei Tarkovsky, which is all choreographed shots between the characters and the and the camera and very little editing. You know, there's you edited in camera kind of, you know, it's a it's a dance between camera and character. And, you know, you can you don't there's no editing. You shoot it and there's one movie. That's it. It's very dangerous, but it's also so beautiful because no one can mess with your vision because there's no other way to edit your film, <laughs> you know? And the way, you know, this started by the masters because they were not allowed to edit, you know, for many years, many times. I think it was a decade where the the studios had final cut. And so the directors, especially Hitchcock, started shooting in a way that it could only be edited one way. And that's it. <laughs> and Sneaky. I that, did not know that. Yeah. And it becomes very addictive. So after I shot this film, I say, I don't think I will ever shoot a movie any other way but this way and i when i say that i heard myself and i thought uh-uh let the movie <laughs> speak for itself what about if the next movie actually wants you to cover to cover like crazy you know yeah so it that 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 is that every project has to speak to you we cannot get ahead of the project and 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 uh with sound of freedom we, we, you know, just to give you an idea, Sound of Freedom, I was doing almost 14 to 16 setups a day, you know, mm. so 16 setups. In Cabrini, I was doing maybe one to two setups a day, same mm. amount of pages. So it is, you know, like complete different approach. And the reason I went completely different is because I started listening to the projects more than what I wanted to do. And, um, like for example, like my my new film Cabrini, uh, it was going to be black and white. Yeah. For a very specific reason, it's not like I, I mean I love black and white films, but I'm, I'm people were asking me why black and white, and I would tell them why. Because uh, I have a character that to the entire film is wearing black and white, so I don't want her to stand out. So why don't if everybody's black and white? And so that was the purpose and and, and the motive of of shooting black and white. It was not. Me saying my next movie is black and white, no matter what movie it is. Yeah. It was more, mm-hmm. oh, this film will look great in black and white. But then you know you evolve, and 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 uh, it's also teamwork. <laughs> At the end, yeah. um, uh, it didn't. You know, I, 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 you know, I. Some people on the team were opposing the black and white, and then we met in the middle. It's it's really important to have those people who will kind of curate your own artistry for the general public. So it would have been beautiful in black and white. And I've, I've seen, and I've seen the, you know, the longer cut, the current, the director's cut. Um, and it would have been beautiful in black and white, but I'm so glad. Which, it's which not. film? Which, which film? Um, oh, uh, I, but I, I wish, you know, it's like, I don't wish it was black and white. I'm so grateful. It's not um, yeah. because I think it has so much more commercial viability. It's going to reach 
so many more people. And I think the, the color palette that you ended up using is accomplishes the same goal and is pretty phenomenal. And I, I can tell you already that, you know, I'm going to be harassing you to get back on here and talk about Cabrini as soon as it's out. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's absolutely going to be a movie of the month pick for yeah, us that, that so, i'm so proud of that film because it's gorgeous I, I i wasn't i wasn't sure it was gonna work <laughs> now when i tell that to my investor he gets really like his face goes like what are you talking about <laughs> uh and yes you know it took it took it took a couple of weeks to, to you know it, the editing was super fast because there was so much you know it was just yeah. pretty much just sandy was the movie so but it took like two weeks you know uh just to give you an idea sign of freedom took us like I don't know, two, three months to get the first cut. So yeah. Cabrini was like within two weeks, 10 days. It's it basically the, the assembly. You've assembled yes. it and yeah. that's and what that's you it. shot. So but I got to tell you those 10 days. Oh man, I was terrified. I literally thought <laughs> this is, this is going to kill my career or, or it's going to elevate. <laughs> it's not no, going to be the same place. It's one of the oh, most uh, beautiful films I've ever seen. I think you can thank you. You can tell that even from just the preview, uh, which oh, is yeah, all I've will. seen so far. But you see that and think, "Whoa, that is a flavor." That I is a to... that is a movie I have to watch. Right. So, and we'll encourage all our listeners to check the trailer now for Cabrini. When's the release date? March eighth. March eighth. So, Cabrini. The the two trailers that I really I talked about a lot as just selling a fantastic tone and being wonderful were Cabrini and Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, I'm watching that I'm watching that tomorrow I just bought my tickets. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll I'm uh I'm going to be watching it this weekend, but the the trailer, whatever the film is, the trailer is itself an amazing piece of art. Yeah. And Cabrini is the same way. So I was watching those two for me were I I craved watching the Cabrini trailer on the big screen as as a trailer it's like i want to see this yeah. you know it was i was watching it on my phone after i saw it in front of sound of freedom because we w- it took my kids back to the theater for it it was in front of sound of freedom and i was like man i need to go back to the movie just to see the trailer again yeah on the big screen That's awesome. alejandro do you have a, a little sneak peek for us at what we should look at in cabrini is are we tracking light and sound again are we tracking just cabrini well, what's herself the subtext? what's the subtext well yeah. it's the 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 big exploration that we did here was the choreography to choreograph mm-hmm. moves with the camera to yeah. make them seamless. Like the other day I was watching the film and I was with my wife and I had forgotten that there was no cut on that particular scene and I didn't even notice. And I just realized that the scene was already four, four minutes into it and it hasn't been a cut but there already had been so much movement so yeah. much change of you know, a scenography and, and I literally looked at my wife and I was like, did you realize there was not a cop? <laughs> and she looked at me and says, no, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, that's, but, see, that's actually, but that was, that, that's but, fantastic. But, but that answer was great because I was like, wow, we did all of these very stage and she didn't even notice that there's no cuts or, or how stagey it was, which is not distractive because a lot of times if you create all these beautiful shots, but you notice it, then, then it's it's actually, you know, works against you if people if he, if if this very difficult shot becomes a distraction. Yeah. What I love to Carini is that there is all of these very difficult shots that can go unappreciated, but that that is actually the greatest compliment if you, yep. people don't notice that on that part all 
big scene. There was not a single cop. And there were, you know, two shot, single shot, front shot, back shot. You know, it's like all of these different movements. And it's just the characters moving around. The camera is just totally shot. But it just feels that there was so much editing there. And the edit was on the choreography, literally. It's like yeah. you're cutting, you know, from a wide shot to a close, with extreme close-up without moving the camera. So the characters were moving into the clothes and the one will leave the camera and the other one will stay. Then the person disappeared and the camera will find the other one standing, but now he's in a white shot because he had walked away. Then the uh, when the camera moves back, then the one that was in a white shot, that's extreme close-up because the camera found, finds her. So it was all this choreography that took us months to put it on paper. So this I, I, I say this, which was really interesting because right before the movie was going to start, I think a week before, I turned in my shot list, which was twice as big as the script. And I told the, <laughs> the, the uh, investor, said, you know, if I die tomorrow, you still have the same movie that if I, that if I was here directing it. It's, the film is already directed on paper. Literally, if people execute what's on paper, I already had rehearsed with the actors. So literally, I was just going there to make sure my, it was a complete different uh, approach to directing, you know, mm. instead of exploring and finding and pulling things out of the actors and, find, you know, discovering or exploring, which is a beautiful way of making movies as well. And this one was more my job was to making sure people were executing the vision, which that's also really hard because there was a lot of pushback because a lot of the actors were like, this, what is my motive? to move to the other side of the room. Why? <laughs> and, you know, again, the ego can be the best friend. I would say, there's two ways here. I can tell you how to do your work, your job, or you find it. Which one do you want? I can tell you your motive. And the minute you tell them that, they will be like, no, I can find it myself. <laughs> and it was amazing. They will find these beautiful motives that, you know, that in the beginning felt unnatural. And all of a sudden, the actors started understanding the language that we were creating here, you know? And it's different because people don't, don't shoot films like this anymore. You know? But if you see all the Tarkovsky films, the Kurosawa compositions, yeah. man, he was putting eight, nine people on frame and they're all like perfectly lit, all like with perfectly, you know, this, this, the frame was perfectly balanced. So it was like, you know, everybody had a mark. Everybody had to hit the mark. And I did a lot of, uh, uh, um, Shots where it was a tribute to those filmmakers. You know, I have a Kurosawa shot, I have a Tarkovsky shot, where literally it was like a mirror from other films. That it was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta pay a tribute to these masters, and and you you you'll, you'll see them very uh, in the film. They're they're not, they're very obvious. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's what you what you said about having one shots that disappear is really interesting. I think goes to the fundamental paradigm of is a movie about the director or is a movie is a better movie about the art and trying to create the art and forget the directing and like create the artifact and give it to the audience. So an audience has all the effect of the no cut scene and like your wife, they don't care. Yeah. You know, it just, it just hits them. It still impacts them. It still affects them. Yeah. But they didn't even they didn't even notice. So a lot of movies I love long single takes. I love Children of Men, Birdman, not as much. Nineteen Seventeen. Uh, there's even a shot in a late season of Ray Donovan that I really really like. That's just an amazing one shot. 
but often it's about the director. It's about the cinematographer yeah. and basically saying, Hey, look at my trick, like watch my trick yeah. shot and gets you back out of the film. So the opposite of sound of freedom, where you were trying to remind people, this is a movie in Cabrini, you're disappearing the wires, you're disappearing, yeah. uh, you know, the, the artificiality of it. And I think yeah. it's, I think it's pretty seamless. And what is very interesting of what you said is, you know, is that in Cabrini, you know, because those movies that you mentioned, 1917, Birdman, it's camera. The camera is the one following. Exactly. And in Cabrini, is the op it's not the opposite, but for the most part, is the actors yep. moving to create this new energy or this new flow for composition. Mm. Uh, and that's very Tarkovsky, which is, yep, you, the old like, way. You, you know, it's completely, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's the actors, the ones, and Kurosawa as well, you know, it's, 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 it's the actors taking, uh, the lead into creating these compositions. Um, the camera, it's actually barely moves sometimes, yeah. you know, I think, do you think like that's one of the, why one, of the, one of my, one of my favorite shots in the film. It's so difficult, but it's also like so simple, and I love it. I didn't think it was gonna work, so it it is a shot. With the, you know when people see the film, but it's see if they can find it. But it's a shot where the camera is literally just still, and the camera doesn't move. The character enters frame. We see her back. We see this. It's it's very uh uh. uh there's a lot of pain in the scene, you know, a lot of tragedy, you know, people on their beds, you know, dying. And she comes in, is in the back, and then she's supposed to turn, walks towards the camera, and literally just face the camera, right? So we set up the shot, and I tell my cinematographer, I say, you know what? This is going to feel very staged. It's not going to work. You know what, man? Let's just, let's just have her enter from the first you know, from the front, because what is the motive? Why is she turning to camera? There's no reason. We don't know there is a window in the camera. We don't like the audience. It's just going to feel so staged and fake. And my cinematographer uh, looks back at me and he says, you are right. I was like, okay, let's just go safe. You know, because we, you know, this is also, you know, there's a lot of things happening. You know, it's a wide shot that goes to a close-up. So, Right before I'm about to move, I see the actress and I say, hey, I, I'm going to change. You have a little more time because I, I'm going to change the whole shot. I don't think I don't think you can make it work. And she goes like, what do you mean? I say, yeah, you know, it's like, I don't know what the motive is here. It's like you're, you're, you enter, turn back. You just look at the camera and face right into the lens. It's like, what? Why? And she goes, before you move the camera, let's just do one take and see if I can pull it off. And I was like, I don't think you can, but let's see. You know, it's kind of, why, like, what's the motive? Why, why are you doing it? Why are you turning around and looking at the camera? She's like, let me do it. So we go, first take, man. <laughs> I think we use take one. He just goes, enters, stops, turns. And then when she looks at you, you can feel the pain and the scene is so, it's like, it's like the choreography just all came together. She goes two steps forward. All of a sudden, we're like in a close-up. And she's just looking right into the lens. And you're not thinking anything. You're not, why did she turn? Nothing. And we just look at each other. We're like, wow, 
<laughs> like we're, we're staying with this, you know and there was other shots that yes they were like 1917 where we had to build sets and go yeah. and camera goes through the thing but this one it's so simple but at the same time so hard and it's seamless and it's those kind of shows that maybe people feel but they don't they're not, not they, the show doesn't seem nothing special about it you know yeah but uh mm-hmm. it, it, it there's a lot of moments like that throughout the film and one other thing that was also very challenging was reflections because as an immigrant when you yeah. come to this country you have two identities you know so you have the one that you left in your country native country and then the one you have to create to survive in this new culture you know whatever country you move but just in this case just america and i know that very well because i i, I, I that's my life so i wanted to constantly have her on two in every shot that we could find to have two of hers, two of, you know, there's a shot when they arrive and you see all the immigrants and they're walking through the water and you see every immigrant uh, as a, uh, a reflection on the water. So we use that through the, throughout the film, you know, reflections, reflections, reflections as much as we could. And it does pace off, you know, throughout the film because it becomes part of the language, you know. When yep. you do it one time, you may not catch it, but we, I think we do it like 20 times <laughs> or more, more than 20 times, I think. I mean, we do it at, it just and it, at one point you start thinking like oh man are we going too far but then it just becomes part of the dna part of the language and you stop questioning yeah and then you realize of, not far enough <laughs> yeah more reflections uh but yeah silhouettes also and we of course we've gone from sound of freedom now to cabrini but I, i'm loving talking about it um hopefully every single person listening is now sold on going to watch cabrini uh, when it comes out March eight, what is, uh, what's what do you think the runtime is going to be when you're done? What do you what are you aiming for in the in the final cut? I think under you know around two, okay. two hours. You know there there's there's uh, I forgot this this uh, editor that used to say the length is all about feeling. You can have a movie that is one hour that feels like three, yep. but you can have a movie that is three hours that feels like one. So the length is nothing but a number. It's it's just how it feels, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, The Godfather is one of my favorite films. I can see it a hundred times. And I never question how. I don't even know what well, how long it is, but I'm sure it's way over it's two long. hours. You know? <laughs> I think uh, today I'm going to see a film. I'm tomorrow, you know. It's I think the new Scorsese film. I think it's three and a half. See, you know, if it feels like one, then it's like oh great. But if it feels like five, <laughs> then it's like oh man, which it happens all the time. So. Yeah. I, I'm always, I'm always more driven by, by how if a film feels long or not, than the actual number, and you find out by testing. And you know, there's I always find, you know, that that the length of a film has very little impact on a movie because if the movie's really good, you you don't care if it was a little too long. But if the movie's really bad, it doesn't matter if the movie's 45 minutes. Correct. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen films, I've seen short films I can't even finish. Yep. Short <laughs> films that I know is 15 minutes, and I'm in minute four. I'm like, man, I can't watch no more. You know? So <laughs> I'm out. It's 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 it, it all depends on on you know, I, I have never seen a film that people say, Oh, the movie's amazing, but it's too long, don't go watch it. Like actually it's the opposite. The movie <laughs> is amazing. It might be a little long, but it's worth it. Yep. But I've never heard the opposite. Oh, the music, the movie is not good, but it's short. You should go watch it. I've never heard <laughs> that. It's short. <laughs> that's very, that's very true. 
On the uh, coming off of the whole, I mean, you must be exhausted after all the Sound of Freedom uh, promotion. Uh, you've been all over the world promoting this film, yeah? Yes, all over, man. It's been, I think I did uh, close to 16 countries Ugh. in in and uh, in, in 20-something cities. Well, I mean, wow. at, at least that's a result of success, but it's it's one of those things where, man, it's heavy, it's hard. But yeah. when when did it dawn on you that Sound of Freedom was actually breaking out and going to be successful? Well, you know, th this film, I do believe, uh, later in life, we're going to look back and study this phenomenon. It's a phenomenon. It's not normal. It's not normal for yeah. sure. For a film to go from nobody will watch your movie Nobody cares about the subject matter. It's too dark. Uh, Nobody will distribute movie with, it. Yeah, movie. The movie was like for four years on the limbo uh, to go and become one of the highest box office film in history of independent cinema. So that mm -hmm. jump is not normal. I mean, no. um, it's and then the to survive all the labels by massive corporations you know yep. it was a la i was being labeled not by the neighbor i was being labeled by big mogul networks you know yep. and at the beginning it was a uh, again it was very it was, it was it was bullying in many ways because a lot of the attacks were not even uh, uh it was like poor journalism you know yep so right. to survive that it's already a mystery and a phenomenon but then not only to survive but to come out in in the summer and beat titanic productions you know uh, uh franchise films yep. this was not a new franchise it was this like i will say barbie was a new franchise but you know mission impossible and and indiana jones i mean those are like films that are already yep. just very uh heavyweights um, those are big dogs heavyweights so you know to be where we are right now and it's still a a, a lot of things will be revealed of how disconnected is the media with the audience you know i i i always heard this i don't know if it's true but i always heard that you know for many ways movies were made for, for only 10 percent of america and you know, there was a 90% of, of the audience that in many ways was forgotten because they were not connecting with the materials. And I used to think that, you know, we start seeing that hunger for, for films that connect with the audience, you know. And this particular thing, I didn't think the audience will connect that deep with this film. You know, it's if, if I think we're the one of the, I don't know, these are quotes that I hear from people that work on the, on the movie on part of the inside team. But they were like, you know, this is uh, a blockbuster film because it came out in the summer and it was a blockbuster in the summer. And with the highest rating ever on Rotten Tomatoes from the audience. Yep. And then it was the audience, the ones that came and defended the film. And then we were accused, well, I, well, you know, this is connecting with American audience. So it's like, okay, well, at that point, when I was attacked by that, I was like, I hope not, but let's see what happens internationally. Then we went internationally and we started being number one in all Latin America. I think we were number one in Spain. 
or you know it's 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 really performing internationally very very well so you know they, they then the audience had a special connection with the film that that transcended all of these obstacles that were put on the film and and yeah. i think it it deserves a social study in the future you know because no one expected it if anybody says i knew the final film was going to be successful uh uh I I I I don't know. I They're don't know. liars. <laughs> I, I I think I think it was definitely a uh, a surprise for everybody. I mean, our expectations was like, look, you know, we were doing pre-sales, two for two, you know, million tickets. You know, was thinking like, okay, this movie, if we make twenty million bucks and we're like celebrating, you know, it will be, I think, the biggest grossing film I ever done with twenty million. Just to be at two hundred, uh, I think right now, I think one might, right now. I think we're uh, they haven't reported this this last weekend, but I think with all in, I think we're close to two six two hundred and sixty million dollars. Mm, yeah, and wow. you know they're they're projecting that the film will cost around three hundred million. <laughs> so <laughs> think about that expectation from twenty million to three hundred million. When I say twenty million, I was I was thinking all in, yep. international including. That was my expectation of being very positive, by the way. Yeah, you're, you you're being very optimistic. One. Yeah, you don't want to hear my, my pessimistic uh, <laughs> uh, projection. Well, Leo, Leo uh, Severino told me that you guys were thinking about just throwing it on YouTube before you partnered with Angel. After, after four years. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know how, how hyperbolic he was being, but it's amazing to have something basically have no one it's a very cinderella story like there's yeah no one wants this film no studio wants to take it out and then it goes 300 million is yeah. insane and i do think you're right there's a there's a sociological report to be done and i think it goes right next to the story of bud light which was happening at the same time and i think what you're describing in the media being bullies yeah. uh, i think that's very true and i think the audience generally was really sick of it. And so didn't, all, didn't, all the, the, didn't they call it a boomer conspiracy theory? Yeah. It's like for, it was a QAnon. This is Rolling Stone. I think said something like it was a QAnon, uh, conspiracy. Theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like whatever yeah. it was a, a dream for boomers with brain worms. Yeah. Crazy. And when I they mean, were, what, 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 yeah. And I think One they actually things, just helped you because a bunch of people, yeah. a bunch of the normal people were just angry and defensive. They and said, like you well, said, it's not that <laughs> the audience, the audience came out. And I actually, I thought the first time we talked, Alejandro, you mentioned that's like a, a kid who worked at in and out burger told you to see the film. Is yeah. that, am I remembering yeah. that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was many, many incidents like that. But you know, one of the things that I think for me, this was revealed. Is you know I have three kids and I I my the greatest teaching I can give them is to think. Mm -hmm. And the problem that we are facing today as a society is that individual thinking it's 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 pretty much not being celebrated. Now we want we are being taught to be part of tribal thinking or like a collective opinion. So we don't you shouldn't have an opinion if if so and so is labeling something this way you have to believe that or you have to belong to a group because if you don't belong you won't survive and this this whole division if you think about it today they want you to be part of one tribe you know yep. you cannot be 
people before I've always been an independent. And before I used to be like, yo, yo, oh, I'm an independent. Oh, great. Today, say that is very not popular. They don't like, no, 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 no. You got to choose a side, right? Yep. So with this film, in the beginning, when we were labeled, I thought it was the death of the movie because it was like, we're not going to survive this label. But then to my surprise, I still have faith in the individual thinking because like you say, it was the audience that said, hold on a second. Let me watch it for myself. Let me see and let me think for myself. And that's what saved this movie. Celebrating again, individualism thinking like, what, what's your thoughts? It's yeah. Like, you know how many times I was in an interview and they came and they already had built, set up an opinion on the film and it was very negative. And then it just daunted me. I was like, hold on a second. Have you seen the film? And they're like, no. And I was <laughs> like, wow. So you have to, well, because I read and I heard what this actor say and I saw this and I, I was like, yeah, but that's their opinion. I want to hear yours. What do you watch the movie? And it's okay if you hated it, but then I'll know that you, you hated it. Now you're, you're hating yep. it because yeah. other people are labeling the film. And that was in many ways what saved the film because it, then it became a movement of people saying, Hey, don't believe those labels. Go watch the movie for yourself. And then the polls came out and we realized that everybody was watching this movie, you know, the, the, the liberals, the conservatives, the middle ones, the immigrants, you know, you don't get to $185 million domestic with only one, uh, demographic. Mm. So it was, it was, uh, very refreshing. You know, it gave me a lot of hope in, 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 in the audience, you know, how Which the audience great. spoke with this film. Yeah. Given, given that the movie is about hope also, that's, that's a good, that's a good thing. Well, this is, um, I'm really grateful for your time, Alejandro. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Hearing that's all great. this. I'm really excited to talk more about Cabrini uh, and to see, I, I really want to see every single future cut. I'm really curious uh, how it's going to get refined as it moves towards release. When are you back in production? On your well, you know how it is. Production always is, you know, it, 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 the romantic date is I start uh, January 8th. Uh, that's the romantic date, you okay. know, the ones we're all hoping for. Um, and I am scouting. Uh, it's uh, November 10th. So I'm, I'm going to Malta. That's where I think I'm going to shoot the film. Okay. So things are moving, but I always say, until I don't say action, this movie's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, yeah, you, uh, are you able to fall apart of pre-production, you know, are you able to talk about what the movie is? Or are you keeping that under lock and key right now? Um, you know, it is, it is a, 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 I want to keep it a little bit, but I, I sure. can tell you the period is 2000 years ago. <laughs> Perfect. And 2000 and, uh, years ago, filmed is, in Malta. Yes. Figure it out. <laughs> you can put the math in there, but it's think uh, for yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's it it's a powerful and 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 and, and it's gonna be my greatest film ever. After that, I'm just gonna make great movies. But this one <laughs> has to be I I'm raising the bar as high as possible. I'm I'm giving it all. Awesome. Well we'll uh we will reconnect with you in the future and try to steal more of your time to talk about Cabrini and also the new mystery project. So awesome. I'm, we're really grateful. Thank you, thank you. Thanks so much. And let me know. Let me know when this is, uh, when this is airing. We'd love to, uh, we'd love to. For sure. Tune yeah, in. we will. That's great.
We'll blast it out there. Well, this has been Sasf. You all have been listening to Alejandro Monteverde talk about his film, Sound of Freedom, and a whole bunch of Cabrini, too, which is fantastic. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, thanks so much, Alejandro, and chat again soon. Awesome. Thank you, man. Cheers. God bless. Yeah, cheers. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the episode of Sasf. We enjoy having you all share your feedbacks and thoughts with us. Here I have for you the proofs of a new book. You might wonder why I don't have the book itself. Well, it hasn't arrived yet. I wanted to show you some of my favorite parts of Blah Blah Black Sheep. If you're in audio, of course, you're going to have to either uh, go to blahblahkids.com to check it out yourself or watch the video on Canon Plus. But here you can see the friendly grasshopper. Uh, not a super important character, but an, uh, he's on the title page anyway. <laughs> and then uh, the other page, here's the picture of Blah Blah Black Sheep singing the wrong song, Blah great stuff and then the last two I wanted to show you this great scene inspired by Tintin and Herge blah blah's uh, uh, wondering if he should become a pirate sail the seas last picture I wanted to show you because you can't see all of them you'll have to wait for the book you don't get to see him running uh, with the wolves or him with the yetis he saves the baby yeti but you do get to see blah blah wondering if he should join a circus to become a fire breather or perhaps join a rodeo to bust Bronx. Anyways, this book is great. Please go to blahblahkids.com and check out the pre-order specials. Uh, some special bonuses there, along with getting your book signed by Nate and Forrest, and also being a part of making the show happen, Lord willing, and uh, many other cool things. So head to blahblahkids.com, get a copy for Under Your Tree.